Today, we're talking about the concept of being alone. Many people all around the world have been recently exposed to some form of loneliness or isolation because of the worldwide coronavirus pandemic. This problem started a little over a year ago, but for a lot of people, it seems like it's been longer than that because they've had to stay at home in order to avoid getting infected. Prime Minister Boris Johnson issued this announcement to residents of the UK back in March of 2020. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Because the critical thing we must do to stop the disease spreading between households. That is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping for basic necessities as infrequently as possible. One form of exercise a day, for example, a run, walk or cycle, alone or with members of your household. Any medical need to provide care or to help a vulnerable person. And travelling to and from work, but only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. That's all. These are the only reasons you should leave your home. These were the most stringent restrictions in Britain since World War II. Very few people thought we would still be dealing with this a year later. Being isolated at home, either by yourself or perhaps with some family members, can lead to some mental health issues, and that includes the possibility of depression. At least we have some ways to connect using Zoom, FaceTime, or some other audio-video communication, but it's just not the same as being with people. Our guest today, Wania, is actually pretty good at being alone. And we're not talking about just being stuck at home. She was brought to a remote spot in the Arctic, nowhere near civilization, just a middle-of-nowhere place, and she was left there to fend for herself. She had to build her own shelter, find her own food, and somehow stay warm in that unbelievably cold Arctic winter. Wania was a contestant on the reality show called Alone. This was Alone Season 6, and it was called Alone in the Arctic. Right now, which is March of 2021, that whole season is available on Netflix. I highly recommend you watch it before listening to this episode. What we talk about here will make a lot more sense when you've seen what Wania had to go through and how she handled herself out there for 73 days. I think you'll agree with me that she's pretty amazing. And if you want to learn some of the skills that she used to survive, hang around right after our conversation to find out how you can learn these things directly from her. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. 
We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You were allowed to bring 10 items with you on this venture. And I have the list here, and I and I wanted to, to just mention it so people know what you were allowed to bring. Number one is a sleeping bag, and mm-hmm. I bet you have a really good one, too. Minus 40. Uh, yep. It's a good bag. Uh-huh, 40 minutes. Okay. <laughs> a pot for cooking all your various types of soups. Or not cooking, as was the case for most of my days out there. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, yeah. A ferro rod, mm-hmm. and that is for starting a fire. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't start a fire itself. It gives you a spark and then you need to blow that into flame. So different right. than a lighter. I saw that one of the other contestants decided to n- not bring a ferro rod. And it seemed like he regretted that uh, pretty early on. That was a bold move. He was the first person, I believe, in the history of the show to not do that. And to make that choice going to the Arctic was uh, was very bold. And yeah, he was very lucky because he was having a very hard time. I would not have made that choice. I prefer Friction Fire to a ferro rod. I actually hadn't used a ferro rod very much in my life. But knowing that it was a very extreme environment where I might not be a familiar with the plant life, it's not a choice I would have made. So he was lucky because he happened to get a cutting board that washed ashore that was a different type of wood than any that was available. He probably wouldn't have been able to make a fire if that hadn't happened. Right. He could have been out sooner anyway. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, and you, you brought a knife, obviously, that seems obvious, bow and arrows, a saw, a multi-tool, fishing line and hooks, which you really, you were never able to use that, right? Well, I used them, but I was not successful with them because my water was all very, very shallow. Yeah, the time that I saw you fishing was when you were trying to get through like uh, 10 feet of ice, it seemed like, and you, you never <laughs> yeah, were able to hit water, I did not right? not get through. It was about two feet of ice. So, so yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't able to. That was intended to be a fishing trip, but because I couldn't get through the ice, it wasn't. That was kind of my last chance to get a big calorie source. And before that, that same technique that I was using, I was using the the back end of my saw. So it's a folding saw and I was using the metal butt of the saw. And that had been working fine when the ice was three to four inches thick. But then we had a really big storm come in and the temperature dropped about 25 degrees within the course of three days. And the ice went from three inches thick to 24 inches thick. And it was a lot of work and it wasn't worth the calorie expenditure. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm not even sure that I could have gotten through because of the nature of the the narrowness of the hole and getting it that deep because I had to go in at an angle with the saw in order to tip the ice out. But I also wasn't sure that where I, I probably would have had to put several test holes to find a really good ice fishing hole. So given the amount of effort it was going to be to get through and how low my calorie reserves were at that point, it didn't seem like it was going to be a good a good match. And so you and you also had the two other things were paracord and emergency ration. What was in the emergency ration? So we got to choose one food item if we wanted as one of our 10. Actually, we could choose up to two, but I didn't want to choose more than one. But it was only two pounds, and we had a choice of about six or seven different foods that we could bring. Hardtack, jerky, gorp, rice and beans, pemmican, chocolate, (laughs) which I thought was pretty ridiculous. But I chose pemmican. To me, that was the only of the potential food choices that was really worth taking because pemmican is a mix of dried berries and fat and dried meat. And so it was the only ration that had substantial fat calories. And that is absolutely everything in a survival situation, particularly an extremely cold weather survival situation. So the pemmican, while it was only two pounds of food, I think that it was a huge part of me doing as well as I did on low calories because it was able to give me enough fat to augment the rabbits and squirrels I was bringing in that are extremely low fat. And it meant that I didn't get protein poisoning from eating such lean meats. Too much protein and no fat. I've never heard of protein poisoning. Mm -hmm. There's a thing. It's called rabbit sickness. You can starve to death on all of the rabbits that you could possibly eat because your body cannot process that high amount of protein, which essentially is nitrogen in your system without some fats as well. So you actually get poisoned by the byproducts of protein digestion. Yeah, I remember Jordan said that's that's what he was experiencing. He had all that moose meat, but, but he was starving 
just because he had no no fat. That wasn't actually accurate. He had fat. He just lost a lot of his fat. They made a big deal of Jordan not having enough fat, but Jordan had some fat, whereas I never had any fat. I mean, a moose has infinitely higher percentage of fat than rabbits or squirrels. So I think they kind of played that up with him while not pointing out that I never had any fat to lose in the first place. He lost some of his fat, but not all of it. And he also had fish, which are higher in fat. So I think that they kind of played that up to make it look like I had a better shot than I did of outlasting him. <laughs> the behind the scenes stuff that we don't see in the edited version of, right. the, of the show. Okay, I want to clear up or clarify something about terminology. Your area of expertise is ancestral skills. Can you talk about that, what that is? Sure, yeah. So, you know, a lot of people want to spin folks who are on alone as survivalists or survival types. And to me, ancestral skills are about those skills that we can use to actually live sustainably in the wild long term, as opposed to survival situations, which we think of as emergency situations that we're trying to survive until we can be rescued. So ancestral skills are those skills that our ancestors used over the course of, you know, millions of years to, to live in a sustainable way. And they're using resources from the natural world around us as opposed to, you know, high-tech mylar blankets and super fancy survival knives with a saw and a compass and a fair rod and all of these things. So ancestral skills would be pottery and bow and arrow and fiber arts and hide tanning and basket weaving and all of the things to make and do the things that we need, not just to get through, but to live and thrive. So you you already had those specific skills. What did you do to prepare for the show? I mean, what was your strategy going in? I really didn't spend much time in preparation for the show in terms of skills. I have been studying this stuff since I was 19 years old, and it's been a huge part. I mean, I, I've been teaching since I was 22, so the skills were already my strong suit, and I spent a lot of time putting work into building gear for the Arctic. So most people, up until the time I was on, most everyone who'd ever done a loan went out with a bunch of really high-tech gear. And instead, I decided to put my trust in the gear that I know. My business is Buckskin Revolution. I teach hide tanning and making buckskin clothing and wool and fiber art spinning and felting and making our own gear with natural materials. And so I decided rather than trust high-tech gear, which is not not something that I espouse in my normal life, that I was going to go with the the things that I know and believe in, even though I was going to a far more extreme environment than I ever had. So I hand knit two sweaters in preparation for loan. I made wool or a buckskin and fur parka, all hides that I tanned and sewed myself. I made my own boots with all hand felted and hand tanned furs and leather. So I was making a ton of the things that I brought out there so that I would have gear worthy for Arctic conditions. So you're just completely self-sufficient pretty much. No, I wouldn't say that, but I if I could if I needed to be, I could be. I have the skills to be more so, but I still I live in modern America and at one time I wanted to just disappear into the woods with my knife and nothing else and never come back, but I recognize now that community and relationships and also sharing these skills and giving people a sense of hope and inspiration is more important than living the totally pure lifestyle myself. What's the typical process to get on this show? There are a lot of different ways, and my process was different than a lot of people because this the show sought me out and contacted me and invited me to apply. So a lot of people are doing everything they can to get noticed by the show and put an application in and hope that they get a call back. So I kind of joined the application process further in. And in my case, it was some conversations with the casting director and then making a bunch of videos highlighting my skills for them. And then at that point, getting the invite to come to what they call boot camp. So they have in my season, I think there were about 20,000 people who had applied because my season had gone through. It was the third year where I should say, let me back up. So season four was a pair of people going out, either husband and wife or father, son, brothers, that kind of thing. And then season five was returning people who had already been on the show. So they had three years of accumulating applications for my year. 
because seasons four and season five, they weren't taking new applications. And so season six, they had the glut of all of those. So it was a much, much more competitive year. There were a lot more applications. So from those 20,000 people, they selected 22 and brought us to a boot camp, which was a week, all kinds of testing from camera testing to medical and psychological evaluation and skills evaluations and rigorous testing. And then from that, they chose 10 people to be on the season. How much did you get to meet with the other contestants ahead of time? Were you able to kind of see them and evaluate them and kind of gauge what kind of competition they would be? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it was much more a place of camaraderie and bonding than a place of gauging one another. But but that is also true. Uh, yeah, so we the, during the boot camp time in New York, we were all together. So there were 22 of us. And it was incredibly bonding, for sure. And then of that, we didn't know which 10 were selected until we showed up to the orientation and base camp. I wasn't out there for the competition aspects. I was out there for the experience, but not to, you know go out there and and kick someone else's butt. (laughs) It seems like for a lot of people, the draw to this, of course, would be the money, $500,000. But that seems like it would attract people who were kind of uh, what you might call outdoor hobbyists and who think, I'm tough, I can just suffer longer than anybody else, as opposed to someone like you who just loves being outdoors and actually knows how to survive. Does that make sense? That's absolutely the case. Yeah, the vast majority of the folks, I would say of my season, everyone who's out there besides myself and Ray, I would say the the money was the major, major motivation for. But Ray and I both had a different perspective on it and really appreciated one another and were kind of support for one another and staying true to our ideals and not having it be about the money. I think that you really see that in watching the show. You really see the people who it's all about the money. And one of the things that we talked about, and we met an alumni of the show who actually happened to be a long-term friend of mine, but but they had a person who was on the very first season meet with us at boot camp and tell us, if you're in this experience for the money, you've already lost. Because if you look at the odds, 10 people are going out one of those 10 people is going to come away from the money. So you have a 90% chance of not meeting your goal if it's all about the money. And that would be if the playing field was even, but it's not remotely even. So it's actually far, far less than a 10% chance for most people. And if you're out there for the experience, that's the one thing you're guaranteed. So if you're there because it's the love of the experience and for the adventure, and for myself also, the chance to represent myself and the ideals I have, which are that ancestral skills are just as good as modern survival skills, that natural material clothing and homemade and the actual craftsmanship are better than factory made and industrial technology. So to me, just being out there and getting to represent that was already a win. And every day I got to be out in this amazing wild place was already a win. So I was able to enjoy myself every day. But to people who their only reason for being out there was to win and they were prepared to suffer for that, that's exactly what they got. Every day was a struggle and every day was a suffer. And they got to experience feeling like they were losing instead of feeling like they were winning for all their time out. Right. And it was very clear that you were just in your element out there and enjoying being outdoors, even though most people would look at that and say, it's suffering, you know, you're freezing cold, you're all alone. And you mentioned, assuming the odds are equal, they're not, and obviously they weren't equal. Ray seemed like he got kind of a a, a bad deal on where he got placed. He did. He was on an island. He was the only one of us that was on an island. So he had zero chance at big game. I mean, depending on our spots, for example, All of the women were placed in a spot that had zero fishing. I had the least fishing experience of the women out there. The other two women are fishing guides professionally, and neither of them were able to bring in fish. None of us were because we were all in very, very shallow water. So just the the, where you get placed. And Jordan is incredibly skilled, but he also happened to get the cherry spot that had tons of small game, access to fish, and big game. And Ray, in contrast, on an island, there were maybe three squirrels on the island. Once he had shot one of them, what was he going to eat? 
you know, he had a lake, he was able to do a little bit of fishing. But yeah, the spots are not equal. The skill sets are not equal. Of course, they're not. I mean, everyone's coming from a different place. And as you said, you have some outdoor hobbyists and some people who it's a life way for them. I mean, Jordan Jonas has spent years living in the Siberian tundra by himself on what he can hunt and catch. So that is not an even playing field. And that's reality. That's that's life. So that's okay. But yeah, the vast majority of people aren't going to come away with a million, 500,000 in my case, a million in season seven, but aren't going to come away with the money. So you'd better be out there for something besides the money. Were you aware how far you were away from the other people? No, they actually, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like playing pin the tail on the donkey because when they place us by helicopter, I mean, they went around and around and kind of disoriented us so that we couldn't tell how far from the base camp we were, how far from one another we were. I could see the helicopters as they were dropping other people, or I could hear them. I often couldn't see them. So I had some very, very vague sense, but no, it's a vast, vast area. That lake is 400 kilometers long. So it's a huge wilderness. And uh, people sometimes with our season have said, you know, they weren't that far out. Yellowknife is a big town, which is true. But we were a half hour plane ride from Yellowknife. We were probably 200 kilometers at least. <laughs> so people don't understand the scale of that region. What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, Cook Unity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code WHAT before checkout to get 50% off your first week. Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, an endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You weren't going to bump into someone else out in the forest there by chance. No, no. <laughs> it seems to me, just watching the show and your day-to-day, it seems like the three biggest challenges were, first of all, just being alone all the time, the increasingly cold temperatures, because it got cold pretty fast after you got there, mm -hmm. and the severe hunger, which you experienced. Which of those do you think was the worst or the most challenging? None of those felt enormously challenging to me. I, so, okay, I would say the cold. I didn't experience loneliness at all. The solitude was not a challenge to me. It was beautiful. I loved it. I was bummed when the crew showed up for medical checks. Not that I was bummed. I mean, I enjoyed them. They were good people. It was nice to interact, but it really shifted my psyche. And when you're so attuned to being alone, it's very jarring to have human contact. It was not the mind frame I was in. So it was not my preference to have to interact with them when they came out. It wasn't what I was there for. So yeah, the solitude was a big challenge to some people. It wasn't a challenge to me. And I think that's because 
my whole life has been geared towards connecting deeply with the land around me. I mean, I have a master's degree in environmental science and worked in botany and entomology. And so building relationships with the natural world is what I do. It's who I am. So I think that in that way, being a naturalist and a scientist was a huge advantage for me because I was learning so much. I was deeply engaged. I was curious. This was a new place, new ecology to learn. The hunger was uncomfortable. I had obviously never gone anywhere near that long with so little food. And thinking about it before having gone, I would have said, I think, like, I don't think I could do that. That's probably going to be incredibly challenging. Not to say that I enjoyed it. I certainly would have rather had food, but it was also fascinating to experience the edge of survival like that, to actually understand what a calorie means in the body in a way that almost no modern humans do. And the discomfort passes pretty quickly. You get used to not eating. I had some pretty massive issues with constipation. That was really uncomfortable. That was from so little calories and so little fiber. But the hunger itself, I wouldn't have chosen it. I wouldn't be thrilled to repeat it, but it wasn't anywhere near as hard as I think the average person who has never gone without food experiences it. And I think that there is a reason why almost every religious tradition in the world uses fasting as part of their ceremony, as part of their religion. You know, if you look at all, all different religions all around the world, fasting is a regular part of it. There's something about deprivation that really gets you in touch with spirit in a different way and gets you in a different way of relating to yourself and the world around you. And so in that way, the hunger allowed it to be a really transcendent experience for me in a lot of ways. I got to experience finding something to feed me besides that which I'm used to feeding myself with. The beauty, the wildness, the adventure, all of those things literally fed me the way food would because I didn't have any option to have food. And you were so appreciative of it when it happened. Absolutely. That's beautiful. The 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 two rabbit day was just, that's like the highlight of your week or month, probably. Months. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so to me, getting to actually appreciate food that deeply was such an amazing gift. The hunger and the deprivation was a gift. Also, the cold, the cold was challenging and uncomfortable and certainly was part of why I couldn't be there for as long as I would have liked to because it just, you know, ate through all of my reserves really quick. But also I experienced, you know, I've lived in cold climates. I've lived in far upstate New York near the Canadian border. I've lived in northern Ontario. I've lived in Vermont. I've lived in Wisconsin, all of which are very cold places. And here I was in the Arctic, and it didn't feel as cold to me as some of the other climates I've been in because I didn't have the contrast of warm, heated spaces. You know, you, you acclimate to the environment you're in. And when you're constantly in heated spaces, then the cold feels much colder. But when it's your day in and day out and there's no respite and it's just what is, you, you learn to live with it and you accept what is in a different way when you're living wild. We're used to this human controlled environment where we have thermostats and we have fireplaces and we have cook stoves and we take so many things for granted and you just don't take anything for granted when you are making it all happen yourself. And that's my preference. That's how I like to live. And so it was an opportunity to put all of my ideals to the practice in a way so much deeper than I ever would have experienced in any other way in my life. From the time you got dropped off, how quickly did you start losing weight? My first medical check was day 21, and I had lost 21 pounds. So I was losing about a pound a day from the beginning. And then it kind of plateaued. I had put on about 20 pounds in order to go out there. So I had started just under 130 pounds, and I was just under 150 pounds when we launched. And then when they came out and did the first the first way in, I was back to my normal weight, essentially. And so I think there was something about losing the fat that I had put on quickly and easily, a lot more quickly and easily. And then I also was 
starting to get more food. Day 21 was also the first rabbit that I got. So from that point on, I was getting a little bit more food and I was also in ketosis. So there's a metabolic state that we reach when we're not taking in carbohydrates, which is called ketosis, where we burn fat and protein fats more if we have them. And so it's actually much more efficient than carbohydrate metabolism. So by the time I switched into ketosis, I was actually going through calories less quickly. And also as a woman, my metabolism is a little bit slower. So I actually had an advantage. Like if Jordan and I had had anywhere near the same amount of food, I probably would have done a lot better because he's this tall, lanky guy. And so his caloric needs are so much greater than mine. So it was amazing to feel how efficient my body was with the very slim calories I was bringing in, so much more so than I expected. I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I lost 50 pounds. But I was out there eating almost nothing for 73 days in sub-zero temperatures for a lot of it. And I never would have thought that my body would have been capable of going as far as it did. Yeah. And you were active. You were using up calories, too. You had to build your shelter. and I was not sitting around at all, ever. Yeah. A lot of people's strategies to go out and just sit and conserve calories. But I was doing everything I could every minute of the day, often by headlamp well after the sun was down, just trying to do everything I could to be able to, my goal was to stay through the winter. You know, I did not want to leave. It wasn't about hoping that everybody else would leave so they could come and get me. It was about hoping that it would be a full winter before, before it came down to the last few people. I know they monitor you and they do regular med checks and everything, but you know, it seems like even though this is a TV show, it seems like there was very a, a very real actual risk of death. Like, I mean, if you fell or you had a problem or anything like that, it's not like they're going to be there in five minutes. No. And in fact, the even the, the idea of safety and the, the red button you can push, it really depends on your spot. When you get that far north, the satellites don't work very well. They're so low on the horizon. So I would have to walk around for a while just to find a signal in order to get a message through to them. So the idea that they could come in time to help me if I got into trouble was really not not a fact. I, I knew that I was out there on my own and that if I got into trouble, it was pretty much me. And particularly as it got later in the season and it got much colder, they could only fly the helicopter during daylight hours. And it was the Arctic, you know, in November. So it was about four, three and a half to four hours of daylight. So that was 21 hours that they couldn't get to us at all, even in the best of conditions. And then you look at blizzards and storms and weather conditions. I mean, again, this is the Arctic, roaring winds, really cold temperatures. So the reality of rescue was, was pretty low. And I knew that from the get-go. So if you're going to break your leg, you better do it in the morning. Better do it in the morning on a clear, sunny day. Yeah, which did happen. I mean, the first person who left fell and broke his leg, and it was early on when they were able to fly easily. In fact, they were they were still able to use boats. I mean, by the time, by the end of my time out there, the lake was frozen, so boats weren't an option. A lot of your days were spent setting traps, which mm -hmm. you called snare traps, snares, and going out and checking those snares. What's the mechanics of that? How does, a, how does a snare trap work? Well, there are different ways they work. In my case, I did not bring snare wire. So my snares had to be a lot more complex and they took me a lot more time to set up. So for myself, I was using the fishing line that I had hoped to be fishing with for my snare. So snare essentially is a loop that closes on itself and chokes an animal. So usually you can use wire. And wire is a wire that's thin enough. You gauge the snare for the game that you're after. So really thin wire, thin wire for snare for rabbits and squirrels. Um, you'd use something thicker for larger game, but we weren't able, we weren't allowed to take anything larger than squirrels or rabbits with snares. So that wasn't an option for us. We were limited to a very narrow gauge. And with wire, then you can just set a snare on the ground and the force of the animal passing through that noose getting around their neck, their own force is going to shrink it down. And ideally, you have made a knot or a mechanism that will allow it to tighten and not loosen because otherwise they could back up. The, the average animal instinct is to keep running and to keep moving forward, not to back up if they get caught. But 
smarter animals can sometimes get out of snares. In my situation, my snares were fishing line, and that meant all an animal had to do was reach around and snip it with their teeth to get out. So that meant that I had to make a snare that was mechanically set up to lift the animal up and off their feet so that they were hanging from the snare and couldn't just reach around and bite it off. 90% of the animals I caught in my snares chewed their way out because or snipped off the snare before they even went through it because they could see them their fishing line and they would just nip them off and clear the trail that's what animals do is they keep their runways clear so my snaring was incredibly challenging because i had to drive pegs into the ground to hold an uh, horizontal cross piece from which my fishing line was and then i had to have it set up loose enough so that when they pulled the horizontal cross piece, it came out from the uprights. And then I used either a rock weighted mechanism or a pole mechanism or a spring pole with spring to it to lift the animal up and off its feet. What that meant is that I could only set my snares in areas that had soil that was strong enough to hold my pegs. Once it got cold enough that the ground was constantly frozen, it was incredibly challenging to set them. But regardless, even before that, I was on a rock peninsula, so there was very little soil. It was mostly either bare rock or sphagnum moss, neither of which you can drive stakes into. So the reason why all day, every day I was setting snares is because it took me an hour and a half to set one snare to find an area that actually had the conditions and had a game trail and had the sapling nearby or a branch that I could dangle a weight from or all of the conditions necessary to make snares. So Snaring doesn't have to be that complicated, but in my situation, it was. Right. And even after all of that work, and if you have success, you still had to compete against the fox who was trying to get what you had caught. Yes. So even so, say say 5% of my snares actually catch a rabbit, and then I'm getting maybe 30% of those rabbits before the fox gets them. So I got, so I began, so one, doing mechanisms that would lift the rabbit higher up off the ground out of the reach of fox. And then also I started checking my snares different times of the day because the foxes were smart enough that they would just go around right after I set them. So I had to start out thinking the foxes and going times of day to check them before the fox was going to be making their rounds. Did you have a particular routine every day? Like it a schedule changed. of I'm doing, it's time to do this, now it's time to do that, you know? Yeah, it changed throughout my time there and based on conditions, but I did more or less. I didn't start snaring right away. I hadn't planned to be doing any snaring. If I had, I would have brought snare wire. But my season was the first season that anyone had ever done any, well, I should say, watching past seasons, no one had ever successfully snared before. So... I didn't really have much reason to think that it was going to come down to snaring. What I knew was that this was a destination fishing lake that people come from all around the world to do. So I went out convinced that fishing was going to be my main calorie source. And then finding that I tried every day for weeks to fish and there just wasn't deep water anywhere because we're limited in range. You're not allowed to move. You get set in a spot and there's boundaries to it. So you can't just go wherever you want to and wherever has the best resources. You're stuck with the spot you get. My spot didn't have fish. So I had to re-strategize. But from the time that I started trapping, then I had a very predictable pattern to my day. And as the temperature got lower, it shifted a bit because obviously just getting water and staying warm becomes a huge part of your day. And then also you have to remember that in the Arctic, it gets dark incredibly quick. I mean, we were out there before Equinox. So we went from 12 hours of daylight, more than 12 hours of daylight before Equinox and then Equinox at shifting. And then by the end, we came out, there were less than four hours a day. So you have less and less time to do all the things you need to in a day as life is getting way harder. And it takes more time. It takes time just to thaw enough water to keep yourself from being horribly dehydrated. You know, by the time you get your game, it's frozen solid, and then you have to thaw it before you can skid in and process it. So the situation gets more and more challenging in, in a variety of ways as time goes on. So that necessarily shifts the routine. I mean, obviously, you were happy being out there. But it seemed like toward the end, you were really torn that you wanted to stay. But you knew that you could potentially be doing long-term damage to your body, even though you felt like you could keep going. That was exactly it. Yeah, I wanted to be out there. And everything in me 
wanted to stay. And I really, the crux of it, and they showed this, was being absolutely determined to stay and thinking, I'm either here until my dear friend shows up in a helicopter to collect me because I'm the last one, or until they pull me for weight. And hoping that I got to be out there for a good long time before either of those things happened. And then we got to the point where my birthday was coming up and I thought, what is the gift I would like to give myself for my birthday? And at first I thought, well, obviously to spend my birthday in this amazing, beautiful, wild place, living the life I've always dreamed of, that would be the best possible gift I could give myself. But concurrent with getting closer to my birthday was the first time that I was really starting to feel in my body the changes that the medical team had been telling me were happening all along. But I didn't want to hear it, and I didn't really believe them. They had been telling me for a while that I was getting dangerously skinny and that they were concerned about me. And I felt fine, and I said, no, you're crazy. I'm good. This is great. I feel wonderful. It's not an issue. And just towards the end, about day 70, I had one medical check where they asked me, they said, how are you sleeping? How does it feel to sit on the ground? Like, is it uncomfortable with your bones jutting out like that? And I was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. My, I just need to put a few more boughs on my bed. It's just because the boughs are spreading. So my bed isn't as cushy. And then I actually started to feel my body and I could feel my bones jutting out. I could feel the changes that they were talking to me about. And, um, and then I was sitting in this place, what is the best gift I could give myself? I know that I'm someone who has the capacity to push myself to a point of doing myself harm. You know, like this is a thing that I do. I can I can work through the night easily. I can forget to eat. I'm a very driven person and I have the physical strength and capacity to push myself beyond what's good for me. And I thought, what would be the most life-changing decision I could make? Yes, the idea of staying out here and making a lot of money, that would change my life. But what are my actual values? I've never been a person who's put money above my freedom, above my health, above making and doing for myself. So if I was to let go of some of my most closely held values for money and on national television, would that be a win? Would that be a gift to myself or to the world? The biggest gift to me would be to show myself that I value myself and my well-being more than anything else, more than proving myself, more than a particular competitive goal, more than money, more than all of these things that our culture tries to tell us we're supposed to value. That would be the strongest message to myself and the strongest message to the viewing public. And in fact, it was a really amazing epiphany one of those very last days, checking my trap line, having to be empty yet again, knowing what that meant for my body and how skinny I was, and then recognizing that my time out there wasn't just about me and what was best for myself. It was also what was best for all of these young people watching me. And was I going to be another example of someone throwing themselves under the bus for money or the win? Or was I going to actually exemplify what I believe in and what I think is good modeling for young people? And I just burst out in tears when I had that epiphany because I realized I couldn't stay. I would not, I would be going against everything I believed in and all of the beauty I'd experienced out there if I didn't choose what was right for myself and for all of the audience. Um, right. I'm glad they got that on camera too. <laughs> Because what a what a uh, a revelation uh, when you talked about that. I mean, you talked about it first that you wanted to make the right decision and and exemplify what you stood for, and then you said today's my birthday, and oh, that was like a gut punch to hear that. Like this is happening on her birthday, yeah. man. Yeah, and the other thing that you don't necessarily see from watching the show is. Part of what was behind that decision was knowing that I had a medical check on my birthday. They were coming to do a medical check. And I was fairly certain at that point it was a medical check that I couldn't pass. So it wasn't even about do I stay here longer or do I leave for my birthday? It was do I let them come and pull me and let people see that I chose to sacrifice my own health, that I let someone else decide what was in my best interest, or do I retain my autonomy over my body and my sovereignty and make the choices that I know are right for myself and model being that. So it was also giving myself the gift of 
self-will and choosing for myself rather than having someone else make the decision for me. I love that. What was the first real meal you were looking forward to? Well, certainly the idea of like a biscuit with butter on it was very exciting, but really the food that I fantasized all the time when I was out there was the food that I could have gotten had I been in another spot. I was picturing bear fat. I was picturing moose steaks. I was picturing beaver tail. I was picturing meat and fat. Um, that said, I thought I was going to have a birthday dinner when I came out. I didn't realize that when you've been starving for months, you can't start eating food again. It would actually literally kill you. There's a thing called refeeding syndrome. People who are liberated from concentration camps sometimes died from being given food right away. So I had weeks of slowly reintroducing food so that I didn't do my system damage. So my birthday meal was a little bit of pureed vegetables and some bone broth. It was not the the feast that I had pictured myself getting for my birthday. <laughs> but one of the, the first time that I was able to eat what I wanted to eat was at a brew pub there in Yellowknife before going back. I think I got to have like a burger and fries after weeks of slowly getting back and reintroducing, you know, little bits of food a little bit at a time. But at first I got given, you know, like a quarter cup of food at a time because my stomach and my whole digestive system were pretty shrunken. Yeah. Tiny. Let's talk about your work now. Mm-hmm. What do you do every day now? Well, you know, the, very ironic thing is that these days I am working really hard to teach these skills to so many folks who just have realized how important these skills are because of the coronavirus. These days I'm spending a lot of time in front of a computer (laughs) rather than out in the wild because I'm doing that via video because global pandemic. So my work has always been teaching ancestral skills. I've also often worked various odd jobs doing different things in order to be able to afford to be living a a wilder, less conventional life, off-grid homestead, that kind of thing. But these days, my life looks more modern than it has for most of my adult life because I am on computers more and teaching over Wi-Fi and such. I'm also working on a couple of different books. I, uh, I have a book about a book that I'm working on about my time on alone, as well as a book that I've been working on for many years about sewing with buckskin, so making buckskin clothing. So both of those projects are are a lot of my time and still doing a lot of crafting, but less than I was doing before I was teaching about it online. <laughs> so I've, I've created the Buckskin Revolution Academy, which is a variety of online courses about a lot of the skills that I used while I was out on the loan. So for people that want to learn that kind of thing, uh, they can learn it from you uh, mm-hmm. online. Absolutely. Yep. What's your, you've got a a big gathering coming up now. What's that all about? Yeah. So I am used to traveling around the country, teaching at gatherings where people come together to learn these skills. When the coronavirus pandemic hit last March and things started to shut down, all of those gatherings were canceled. And so I decided to go ahead and do an online version, thinking that it would be a one-time thing because of coronavirus. Well, I found that I reached so many people who never would have even known about these skills gatherings and wouldn't have the capacity to get themselves to one in person. And the impacts on people were just amazing. And I realized that this was a really important and needed thing, not just during pandemic times, but for all of those people who are hungry for these skills and have no other way to get them. And through doing those gatherings, I've also created a really flourishing online community of people who are now online regularly posting questions. Like just had someone post a picture of a willow basket they had made, just taught themselves willow basketry. My buckskin sewing course is on there and people are posting pictures of all of the beautiful buckskin garments they've made since taking my course. So I've got this online community of folks with a bunch of different subjects, even ones that they haven't learned from me, who are supporting one another in their learning journey with nature connection and hide tanning and buckskin sewing and all aspects of ancestral skills, off-grid living and related subjects. So if someone wanted to join that spring gathering, I mean, no, that's that's coming up pretty soon, right? I mean, as we're, let's see, as we're recording this, this is going to be live on uh, March 26 mm-hmm. of 2021, and th- your online gathering is starting pretty soon. It starts April 5th. So yeah, there, and I 
should still have, I won't be closing registration until I reach a, a critical threshold so that I still have time and attention for everybody in there. But by by March 26th, I believe I'll still have spots available. And uh, yeah, they can sign up and it is a six week event, but they have six months to do all of the courses and six months of access to the online community. And it has four different tracks, wilderness living and survival, awareness with a focus on birds and plants and nature connection, homesteading and sustainable foods and ancestral skills and handcrafts. So depending on your subject of most interest, you can focus on a specific track and go along with other people who are interested in that as well. Or you can take all of the tracks or you can sample from all of the different tracks. So it's a broad range of different skills and you kind of design your own journey with it. It's mostly pre-recorded classes that people can watch on their own schedule. Then there's also community calls and myself and peer mentors and this ongoing community forum. This is a big thing. This is not just a, an hour of training on Zoom. You're, you've really put together a big <laughs> no, thing here. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a well curated, full learning journey, appropriate for both beginners. And I have folks in the gathering who've been doing this stuff for decades too. So it's designed for all skill levels and for everybody to get something out of it. Good. Well, we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh, for this episode, as well as your website, which is buckskinrevolution.com. And I know you're also on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, and you got a Patreon, and you're all over the place. You know, I was just, I just now thought of this. You might be training a future contestant. There is someone who is in my fall gathering who is being considered for the next session of Alone, the next season. So yes, I absolutely could be and potentially am right now um, helping out the next, the next Alone participants. That would be pretty awesome. It would be, yeah. Is there anything that you wish people would ask you about, about this experience that nobody ever does? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of people, when they hear about the alone experience, particularly in the Arctic, they want to hear about all of the things were so hard. And I wish people would ask me more about what was beautiful and what was life changing and what I loved about it, as opposed to what were the biggest challenges and how did I manage that degree of suffering? I, I would love to share with people the beauty and fulfillment that comes with these type of skills, because already the deprivation and suffering is what seems like it's most foremost in people's mind. And that's, I think, a lot due to media that likes the extreme and likes the drama and kind of plays up, you know, they have the, that doom sound when they show the predator coming, but they don't have the opposing soundtrack of the, you know, beautiful music when the lake sparkles just so or the ice is forming. So I would like to see a more balanced view and more emphasis on the beauty. Yeah, they need to have like the sunrise with a banjo playing or something. <laughs> and <laughs> right. well, I think you're you're a great example of how someone can really control how you react to something, even if it might be something that's uncomfortable or you're cold or you're hungry. You know, it's how you react to it that makes all the difference in exactly what your it. experience is. Yep. It's your attitude. Your attitude makes makes your lived experience. And you saw that in the show where I was out there in the exact same conditions as everybody else. And a lot of the other folks were really suffering. And I was having the time of my life. I was singing and dancing every day and just in absolute bliss because I chose to focus on the things to be grateful for rather than the things that I was missing or that I didn't have. And we have that choice every day in our daily lives. We can focus on what we have or we can focus on our disappointments and the things we don't have. And one, one leads to greater joy. <laughs> Anything else you want to add? One thing that feels important is just to tell all of the listeners who, particularly if they've seen alone, a lot of people want to put folks who do this kind of thing up on a pedestal and think about how they, they could never do something like that. And I want to just encourage people to recognize that you too can do all of these things. And in fact, it's what you evolved to do. All of our ancestors up until a couple hundred years ago were living lives out in the wild, making and doing, hunting and gathering and doing for themselves. And we all have that capacity within us. And we never know what we're capable of until we're actually in a position where it's what we have to do. So I want, I want to encourage everyone to believe in their own capacity. Isn't she great? I really enjoyed talking with Wonia, as you could probably tell. 
And if you're interested in joining her spring gathering and learning for yourself about wilderness survival or ancestral skills, she's created a special discount code just for listeners to this podcast. So when you sign up, use the promo code WWTL15. That's WWTL15 for a discount off the enrollment price. And that promo code expires on April 1, 2021. And a couple of other things. Raw Audio 12 is now live. I know lots of people love hearing the actual 911 call audio and the stories that go along with them. And those extra episodes are what you get when you sign up to support the show for just $5 a month. That's over at whatwasthatlike.com support. So in this newest Raw Audio episode, a social worker suspects the worst when she's blocked from a supervised visit. I'm, a, I'm afraid for their lives. Okay, has he threatened the lives of the children previously? A young man takes too many Mucinex DM pills and does something he later regrets. Okay, what do you mean you murdered your roommate? I shot him three times and I used an axe and mutilated his body. And a two-year-old girl goes missing for two days before a volunteer searcher finds her. Describe to me what she's wearing, sir. She's a purple shirt and gray straight pants. Okay, does she have her shoes on? I don't know. She's got her feet in the weeds. As a supporter, you get access to all 12 of the Raw Audio episodes, as well as the future ones that I release regularly. That's at whatwasthatlike.com support. And finally, I got a voicemail from Rich, who has a question. Hey, Scott. This is Rich right here in the Tampa Bay area. Love your show. I subscribe to several podcasts, but yours, What Was That Like, is the only one I listen to consistently, and I tend to let you build up a few, three or so, and then I'll binge and listen to all three of them. Uh, I've listened to every single one you've had, um, and I really appreciate them, so thank you very much. Please keep it up. Uh, question for you that you didn't get asked on a Q&A, maybe you can answer at some point, is have you ever done a podcast or an interview, I should say, and you never published it or released it? Um, or maybe you've held it for six months because you weren't sure if it's really appropriate or you had some concerns about it or whatever. Uh, just asking. Anyway, thanks again. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Rich. Yes, that has happened actually a couple of times. The one that comes to mind, though, is the first time it happened. Here's the thing. Most of the people I have on the show to tell their story are not professional public speakers. They aren't used to being interviewed. And there's really kind of an art to being interviewed. When your guest, especially with some kind of a really unusual story, like what we do here on this show, you want to really give all the details, you know, paint a picture in the mind of the listener. One thing I always tell each guest before we start recording is that they don't need to be brief to save time. I don't care about time. What I care about is getting all the details of the story out there because the details, that's what everyone wants to hear. It's what makes the story interesting. And I really just don't want these stories to be interesting. I want them to have you on the edge of your seat to hear what happens next. If you're listening in your car and you get home before the podcast is over, I want you to have to sit in your driveway so you can hear the end of it. I know what that's like because I've had those driveway moments myself. And since my guests aren't usually accustomed to being interviewed, a lot of that is on me. I need to ask open-ended questions like, what was going through your mind when that happened? A really bad thing to ask is, were you scared? Because then you get the answer, yes, and that doesn't really go anywhere. Well, there was one guest who had this really crazy story, and I'm not going to say where this happened or what country it was in, but I'd get stories from all over the world. He was on his treadmill getting ready to work out, and his treadmill happened to face an outer wall, and suddenly a car came crashing through that wall, and it ran right into his treadmill and it knocked him to the ground. And of course, there were all kinds of questions to be answered at that point. Was he injured? Who was the driver? Why did they crash through the wall? Who's responsible? Were there any witnesses? Does someone need to call an ambulance for anyone? All kinds of stuff like that. The problem was, I kept trying to get the guest to tell the story, 
and he would only give me a sentence or two at a time. No details. It was more like he was just reciting the facts of what happened. And without those details, we were all done in less than 15 minutes. Well, for each episode, I really shoot for the story itself to be at least 30 minutes. And as you know, many of them go much longer than that. So a 15-minute podcast just doesn't cut it. So that particular story just never got released. But thankfully, those cases are pretty rare. And thanks to Rich for calling in with that question. And if you have a question or comment for me, I would love if you would call in and leave a voicemail just like Rich did. You can call the podcast voicemail line any time of the day or night, and no human ever answers. It's just a place for you to leave a message. If you mess up what you want to say, just hang up, call back, try again. The phone number to call and leave your comment or question is 727-386-9468. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I've got lots of amazing stories in the pipeline, and they're all coming up soon. So make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever your podcast player calls it. Either way, the What Was That Like podcast episodes are always free. And when you subscribe, you're sure to always get the newest one as soon as it gets released. Stay safe. I'll see you next time. Hey, Ohio, have you heard the buzz? Slinger's Signature Cocktails are the new go-to to go. Slinger's are convenient, canned, cocktail-inspired flavored beverages that bring you delicious flavors like Bahama Mama, Peach Screwdriver, and Pineapple Punch with 8% ABV. They pack a punch at a price you can't beat. No time to make fancy cocktails? Don't want to break the bank on a night out? Slingers has you covered. Blast your taste buds, not your wallet. Grab Slingers today. American Fermentation Company, Boston, Massachusetts. Please drink responsibly.